Today's episode is dedicated to Bradley Thomas, who donated to our crowdfund campaign because he feels effective communication will take us back to that pre-2016 time when everything wasn't on fire. If you'd like to support Open Country, please click the link to our Crowdpack page on the show notes. You can then email us and tell us why our project matters to you. Also, please rate us on iTunes and leave a little review. It does more than you may think. prefer to talk as little as possible in interviews, which means I only occasionally obliquely refer to how open country started. Sometime in 2016, amid the chaos of Brexit and Trump, I had an epiphany. For years, I'd worked hard to have a career in party politics. I even managed an election campaign in 2015. Like many politicos, I had dreams of becoming an MP and climbing greasy pole. But Brexit, Trump and experiencing the startup world made me rethink everything. Party politics, I felt, wasn't a good vehicle for effecting change. If I created my own business and brand, I could do way more. So in the beginning of 2017, I launched Ulexes. I could lend whatever skills I had as a strategist and communicator to causes and companies that were making the world a better place. Open Country is an extension of that. In this episode, I speak to my friend Andrew Beattie who also took a chance last year for a similar reason. He co-founded a magazine called Ethos, which celebrates businesses that make the world a better place by behaving ethically and responsibly. As an entrepreneur, I'm like an actual capitalist, but there are big problems with our economy right now, which is why I want to have more conversations like this one. What is your favorite word? Favorite word is, I should have a really difficult question. Um, it seems to stump everyone. He loves swearing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, my favourite word is. Um, I don't have a favourite word. I was just gonna. I was. Just, I very nearly said lexicon. Then lexicon. <laughs> that's actually not my favourite word at all. It's just the best. Um, I would say favourite word is socialism. <laughs> what a great entrepreneur you are. Uh, favourite book. Favourite book is, mm, now this is difficult, Um, the book I've just finished was a really enjoyable book, I think it's the third time I've read it, it's called um, The Imperfectionist by Tom Rackman, I think his name is, and it's about um, a kind of fictional newspaper in Rome, and I enjoy that. My favourite book is typically the one I'm reading and enjoying in the moment I'm doing it. Favourite film? Jaws. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is a good one. Yeah. Which fictional character do you most identify with? There's a TV series called uh, Bored to Death, which kind of, in the last series of it, it was a HBO series, and it was written by a guy called Jonathan Ames. And he, the, there's three main characters in it. There's Ted Danson, Jason Schwartzman, and Zach Galifianakis, which are kind of like the three um, sides of the writer's personality. And I would say I'm probably like a combination of all three of those. It's probably the, yeah. Have you seen The Good Place? No. No, have you heard of it? No. No? You'll like it. It's got Ted Dance in it. And it's basically a woman dies 
and she goes to the good place. Um, basically, every religion got about 5% right of what the afterlife is like. Okay. Um, and she's in this community where it's like a perfect community. And like when you go to the good place, uh, you're matched with your soulmate. Oh, okay. Uh, and like everything is constructed, so everything like that. But actually, this woman was a terrible person on earth and there's been some sort of error. Um, and it's it's excellent. Like, sounds it's, great. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Who is your real life role model? Real life role model? Uh, that's even trickier. Um, I would say real life role model. Do you know, I don't, I, I don't, to be honest, I don't tend to have role models to be perfectly honest. There's kind of, there's characters that I have, there's a few characters I I admire, um, but I don't typically have role models. My granddad was probably uh, as close to, or my dad are probably as close to kind of role models as I've as I've got. Um, why why would that be? Well, me me, me me granddad. Well, both my granddads actually, but me, the granddad I was talking about then, kind of specifically, he was a um, builder, um, kind of general contractor, but he was. In his in his his hobby was art, and he made stuff, you know, like lots of different things. He was a, he painted lovely pictures, um, which some of which we've got in the in the house. He he made a wooden boat. He made a sword. He used to do all manner of weird stuff and listen to Django Reinhardt records. And yeah, he was he was a cool cat. Me me my granddad. But you know, he was a um, it art was his great was a was his hobby, and he was really really good at it. But he had a, a honest day job you know his, mm. his main focus was on kind of working hard and bringing cash in for for his family you know it's kind of yeah that was a cool guy after 2016 are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future i, I think i'm always optimistic to be honest yeah i'd, I'd, I'd say i'm kind of generally i'm, I'm a, a, a great optimist I'd, I'd yeah i have to be really uh of all the people you know whose minds would you most like to change uh, so people I know personally yeah oh, that's a really good one um, of all of the people I know whose mind would I like to change um, <laughs> I need to have my mums then um, yeah, I'd like to convince my mum that, that what I do is, is a real job <laughs> no, no, no I think of all I, the people, I have the same problem <laughs> yeah, yeah no I think um, of all of the people I know that, whose minds I'd like to change I would say that's really difficult. Um, I think most. I think most of the people I know are kind of broadly, particularly from a kind of a professional perspective, we're kind of broadly in the same kind of world of, or we both, we all kind of typically believe in the same. We might have different political beliefs, which is totally fine. But I think the kind of the world we're working to create in whatever way we're doing is broadly the is broadly the same. There's probably. I don't know really. Yeah, I don't know really. My mum, my mum's a good <laughs> one. Yeah. Uh, when was the last time you changed your mind? Um, to be honest, I, I, yeah, I change my mind. Reason, I change my mind reasonably often about stuff. Um, to be honest, I, I never, I don't tend to have kind of entirely fixed viewpoints on stuff. I'm always open to be challenged on all of the stuff uh, I, I believe in. Um, and kind of actively try and seek to challenge them, I think is, is important as well. Um, the last time I was, to be honest, I thought Trump and Brexit was an unmitigated disaster. And whilst I still believe it's an unmitigated disaster, I've 
I've kind of come full circle on on kind of how irreversible the damage of both is. If you weren't doing what you do now, how else would you try to make the world a better place? Um. So. So if if I want. If I wasn't doing what I, I did now, I'd really struggle. I'd really struggle to not do what I did now. If so, it's interesting. I was kind of journal. I was writing about this the other day, or kind of journaling about it the other day. If money was no object and I could do anything at all, I would probably do lots more um, kind of volunteering type stuff. I think I'd, I'd both do a lot more volunteering type stuff, and I'd travel more to meet some of the people that we write about that I, that I don't get to, to, to see. I'd be, I'd be a roving bard. That's my, that's my ideal job. It's a great little Twitter bio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got through the lightning round faster than most people usually do. So. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, I don't think I answered one of the questions that, that well, but um, about the kind of, I didn't explain why the bored to death characters. Uh, I think that the, he's, the, so the writer Jonathan Ames kind of he's one of my favourite writers. I kind of I really loved his 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 books for um, when I first read them and still do. But he's he's kind of like a perfect kind of human. So he's a, an aspiring writer. He's a bit of a um, raconteur, but he's also kind of like a highly neurotic person. So kind of like a a perfect human writer. <laughs> Last year, you launched a new magazine called mm-hmm. Ethos, mm-hmm. which focuses on businesses that are making the world a better place by behaving ethically and responsibly. Yeah. What led you to start it? We so so the so the, the story so the story of how we, we we got to it. We'd so for the first the 2014 International Business Festival, we myself and a few others collaborated on. A newspaper, a newsprint paper, which is kind of broadly about kind of business in the city region um, of Liverpool. Yeah. Of Liverpool, yeah. So, so, so we we launched that because the Daily Post had just gone about a year before it gone had, had gone bust, or yeah, let's say gone bust. Other than the Echo, there was no kind of good, high quality print title for these visitors to to take away. So we launched the City Tribune, um, then. On the back of that, we were approached to um, through someone we knew who worked in the social enterprise sector to produce a newspaper about so it's a similar format, kind of high quality, beautifully designed bit of print um, around social enterprise in in Liverpool. The reason we were approached to do that is because in our other work lives as 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 freelancers and agencies and as a as a collective, we or I certainly um, had done a lot of my work in the social enterprise sector and world and social enterprise in the kind of broader sense of the of the, the word but that'd be kind of startups who met, made things locally and had local supply chains through to registered social enterprises legally defined social enterprises so and that idea of doing a social enterprise magazine for Liverpool didn't really appeal to to me at all because it would have just become a a, a it would have been become just a kind of another industry silo kind of talking shop and b because the world of social enterprise and I mean in the kind of broadest sense of the world is kind of enormous and we we had a sense at the time that it was kind of like a a growing movement you know there's tons of reports saying 
kind of millennials and kind of young, of which I am one, just about, um, and kind of young people, the most kind of value-led generations ever. And, you know, so we felt it was a kind of a bigger thing. We thought there was a more interesting kind of global story to, to, to tell. And so, so those conversations grew over probably the period of about 18 months, two years before the first Ethos magazine came about. You recently wrote that um, I really, really needed a fairer world of work with businesses doing good and being better instead of polluting our oceans, lungs, brains while paying as little tax as possible, moving money offshore and fucking over their employees. Were there any companies whose actions especially pissed you off or any whose behaviour you wanted to celebrate? Yeah, no, it, yeah. Uh, Christ, I was quite vitriolic, wasn't I? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, I think, to be honest, I think it was lots of, I think it was lots of small things actually. So I think there was, there was lots of examples for, so the, so kind of I was kind of, you know, like, you know, I'm not going to say I'm a special case in this at all, but like millions of other people's, I, I was kind of really affected by the the financial crash, you know, in a kind of a in a. It's kind of quite an undescribable way at the time, really. You know, it was kind of a, a huge, you know, it was a huge shock to the to the system, and I think it kind of really kind of altered, it kind of really it was a bit of a slap around the head, really, and kind of really altered my thinking about kind of the large institutions and kind of how they how they behave and how when they're kind of unregulated and they kind of separate themselves from the kind of wider kind of societal responsibility um, that can go go really badly, you know. Um, and the, and to be honest, the, 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 there's, there's lots of other examples of, of that, you know, you, you, you know, look at the, the, the Panama Papers and all of the other stuff to see. And, you know, it, it's widely publicised that kind of enormous brands, some enormous brands anyway, kind of move money around all over the place and, and offshore and kind of have one holding company in one place and they funnel money to and a head office in another place that, you know, I think that, that kind of the big tax swizzle, I think, is, and they've just been allowed to do it over such a, a long period. I think so. There's lots. So to be honest, there wasn't one particular company. As I, as I say, I think the financial crash in two thousand and eight was was probably the the bit of a kind of kick up the arse, so kind of like a bit of a reawakening for for me, really. You know, it was kind of my, it was the first time. It was the first time when I became kind of really interested in kind of business and politics and how both of those things to work, to either conspire against, well not conspire against in a, such an overt way perhaps, but um, how they can kind of both positively and negatively impact the rest of us. I think from a, from a positive company, I think there's, there's tons. So I'm, I'm, I'm on the board of Homebaked in, in Anfield and they're a really good example of a really, really good community um, business. You know, they pay a living wage, they're a growing business, you know, they're a profitable business, but they use a, they use a local supply chain where they're possible so they can actively kind of measure the impact that every pound that is spent in, in, in home-baked goes and the kind of, in, and the wider impact that has for the community. And I think kind of more and more, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly impressed by kind of companies that have got that kind of awareness, I think. You know, they make money, but they're also brilliant people as well. In a recent column, the FT's Janan Ganesh mm-hmm. wrote that 
for for companies to go out of their way to demonstrate that they are ethical and uh, contributing to the community accepts the premise that capitalism does no good. The, the, the fact of creating products and services that make people's lives easier aren't enough. Therefore, they need to demonstrate their, their sort of ethic, you know, <clears throat> their ethics in funding art galleries and scholarships and sort of everything like that. Uh, it seems to me that the people who are most skeptical about whether businesses can actually be good are those with the least experience of business. Yeah, that's that, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that that particular argument. So, in in that particular kind of example where the you know a business has to fund an art gallery or scholarships, I think is that for me wouldn't make it an ethical necessarily an ethical business. An ethical business pays a proper living wage to its um, employees. You know, the it, it is aware enough of the kind of cost of living for its staff to ensure that they earn a living wage and can live a good quality of, of never mind reasonable quality of life, a good quality of, of life. You know, I think it's ethical for for businesses to be aware of their supply chains and, and that's down to the, the 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 things they buy for the office, the stationery and it, it all of this stuff is easier to do for for a startup company than retrofit into a large company. But for a large company to go through the process of looking at how much it pays its staff, looking at how much its suppliers pay, pay their staff, looking at where it sources products, where it buys products, where it sells products, looking at the um, the kind of ethical bent and um, sustainability strategies of um, people it does business with. You know, all of this stuff takes time. And actually, you know, if, if most kind of large companies were to do that now, they would probably find out that, all of those things aren't perfect, but then to put a strategy in place to actively kind of work towards an an ideal ethical scenario, I think is is and that's all you're really asking companies to 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 do. That's all that's that's all you could really ask of any company. You know, you're not gonna ask it. Do, you know, no reasonable person would ask a large company to stop cease trading immediately because one of their suppliers doesn't pay their staff for living wage that would be completely unreasonable but I don't think it has anything to do with kind of large philanthropic gestures in fact I think it has it's it's an, it's the complete opposite of that it's the small it's the small details that, that that improve the life of their or ensure that their staff the kind of the stakeholders in their business whether they're customers suppliers team members all have a kind of a good quality of life and that they're a positive impact in the community. Uh, something else that Ganesh wrote recently was that in popular culture, there aren't really any celebrations of business people or entrepreneurs in sort of TV or film or, you know, the, the common depiction of uh, an entrepreneur or businessman they're usually either morally ambiguous or the villain. So you know they, you know everything from like Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood to uh, someone who's sort of morally dodgy but not quite sure. And I wonder if that sort of feeds into the skepticism of whether not simply that businesses can be good for cynical reasons, mm-hmm. 
but they could be good because the people who run them could be good themselves and want to run a good company yeah. that, that contributes to the community and has an actual positive effect on society rather than just thinking this would make good PR. No, completely. No, I, yeah, completely. I think it, 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 yeah, I'm not sure how well a show would do if it had a kind of a, a nice guy business person. You know, I think it, it, it's easier to kind of typecast from a, from a kind of creative media perspective, the, the business person as the, as the villain. I wonder if it's, um, so I was listening to an interview the other day. I can't remember the guy's name, but started a theater production company. Mm sort of 20 years ago. And over the course of the 20 years, he's built it into a sort of business. And now he's launching a spin-off, which is an investment firm that invests in artists and gives them the sort of business training that they would need to actually make their creations profitable. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And he sort of made the point that a big problem that artists have is that they, they don't know business and they don't know the business world and they don't know the they don't know the economics of selling their work whether that's a reason why popular culture cannot fathom a a, a positive arc depicting a an entrepreneur or a business person from like starting a you know could you and i both know the the trajectory of trying to build a, a business and a brand yeah. of starting from absolutely nothing and yeah. over time slowly building it, going from like the underdog to the success story. And maybe we could, because artists aren't really aware of the business world and have no training of what business involves, that there isn't this kind of positive depiction of entrepreneurs. And then that feeds back into this attitude that businesses aren't themselves good. It's all just a cynical ploy to get me to pay more money. Yeah, that's really interesting. That yeah, I mean, the in I suppose in in the case of the kind of artist, I mean, it's it's kind of it's often said, and sometimes I, I don't know kind of how true it is that you know the the kind of creative endeavors are kind of use one side of the brain and um, people are very that side of the brain. I should know what that is actually, but I don't. I don't know which side of the brain it is, and then the kind of. Um, the kind of business business that kind of logical and reasonable kind of exists in the the other side of the brain I think yeah I think that's only kind of partially true I mean I think kind of business to a, a degree and kind of doing business is kind of reasonably straightforward I don't think it's I, I don't think it's a matter of ethics actually whether whether to you can be a good business person or a bad business person I don't think it I don't think I don't really think that kind of comes comes into it you know I think it, it if you can if you can create a product that has a value to somebody else you're kind of 75 percent of the way of the way there to be honest I think that's the I mean the, the I think you're right though in terms of in terms of kind of popular culture and the way kind of and kind of how cynical people are I think what's interesting is I think that as a that as a kind of a, a feeling and an idea was fine for a long long time that was it was it was fine and arguably fair for a lot of people particularly you know the the kind of pre-2008 and the kind of post-2008 generations it was it was a reasonably fair assumption for a whole an entire generation of people to be really dubious about the um about the ideals of capitalism and the 
financial system and kind of those enormous companies because they very very kind of obviously let people down that being said you know i think there's a pre-2008 world of work and there's a post-2008 world of, of working in the post-2008 world of work the people are increasingly going freelance and working for themselves you know by 2020 kind of over 50 percent of the workforce in the West is going to be freelance or self-employed or kind of gig economy or, or and, and kind of occupied. So they will be self-employed, you know, either right. themselves or... I, I saw one stat that um, in Britain, as a, as a proportion of the workforce, self-employed is overtaking public sector workers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's just a, you know, in, in the early 2020s, most people will, will, will work for them themselves you know and, and I think that kind of you know that kind of you know we're, we're really adaptable aren't we as a kind of human species you know I think that if there are a whole generation where more than 50% of them are just just have to work for themselves that's just the reality of how they they work they will soon grasp the how you earn and eat and live from it and um, but I think it, you know I had a really interesting conversation with someone the other day um, who's in robotics um, and sort of very obvious question I asked was about the kind of the, the ethics of, of, of automation and what happened uh, what, what's the end of that story in terms of in terms of employment and people's work and she raised a really good question which is is that that question is only predicated on the current system of kind of how we earn money so we do a task for an amount of, of money um, and it's based on the kind of current system and it, I think you know expecting it to stay exactly the same over the next 10, 10 years well it's very unlikely I think that that kind of system of, of kind of of how we earn and kind of how we measure the the both the success and the reward for the work we do I think is probably going to change over the next 10 years. I'm in sort of two minds in terms of I've read stuff along the lines of automation robotics going to take people's jobs and the amount of unemployed people that's going to skyrocket and you're going to have all these people who can't do work. So a social problem, which will then impact the politics, politics of extremism as though they're not extreme already. And then on the other hand, there's quite a good book uh, by a guy called Rusha Sharma, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Nations. Mm-hmm. It's a very grand title for actually quite a simple book, and his argument is basically forecasts that are 10 to 50 years in the future aren't really of any use. Nope. You can only really judge where an economy might be going over a five to seven year cycle. Yeah. And so he outlines the different ways to, the, the criteria to judge where an economy is going over a five-year cycle. One of the points he makes is that the use of robotics and automation is highest in countries with the highest employment. So actually there isn't this, you know, other trajectory of the more it's used, the the higher the unemployment figures. It's actually, they seem to be in sync with one another, but it's kind of a case of which side's right, and, it, and we might not really know until it's too late. No, no, completely, completely. I mean, the, I mean, this is an example where I've probably changed my mind. You know, I mean, I up until 
probably a handful of weeks ago until I had this conversation, which I won't spoil because it's in the next issue of my magazine, <laughs> uh, the interview, uh, or a short version of the interview. Um, and I kind of was very much under the illusion, and it was under the illusion because I actually didn't know any better or I kind of hadn't spent a lot of time looking into it, that as more jobs would be automated, more people would become unemployed, they would take... You know, they were, uh, automation and kind of robotics, particularly, and you know, artificial intelligence, all of that would take jobs. As a result, more people would be unemployed. We had then have an enormous social problem because unemployment goes up. And actually, since and I haven't kind of completely changed my mind, but I've, I've, it's certainly given me kind of, it's certainly allowed me to kind of pause and think after having this conversation because it isn't. It, it probably isn't true. You know, it, I mean, that probably isn't the. The, the case you know in this conversation in the conversation actually raised really the the lady um, I spoke to Andra um, remarkable woman um, she raised a really interesting point which is that um, robotics typically takes replaces or takes jobs where humans are treated as robots that's a really um, nice line which is a really which is a really which is a really interesting actually kind of that just that line alone kind of has stuck with me since you know if 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 it if it typically takes kind of um, jobs where there's where humans are treated as robots so humans are then freed from those type of tasks then it opens up all manner of possibilities for for um, and I, and and yeah and I do think the argument that it will probably take you know which I would have probably after a couple of banks kind of argued till I was blue in the face maybe a month ago um, it's just unlikely you know it's just un- I mean I've literally I've no idea what job Max will do my, my son will do in, in when he's he's 18 primarily because I don't know what jobs will need done yeah. in 20 years you know I've I've, I've 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 no idea what that looks like so I think actually you know the, the, the you know there will always be stuff to there will always be stuff to do, but it will probably look very different than the stuff we do now. You know, I just hope there are still newspaper people. I hope, yeah. I hope there are still magazines and media people and creative people and, and all of that stuff, you know. Can we make capitalism work? De- de- yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, like, uh, yeah, on, yeah, a hundred percent or certainly a version of capitalism. It is fine to grow a company and make enormous profits if the the action in in the action of doing so you also understand your responsibilities to civic society, the environment, your community, your stake stakeholders. Um, and I don't actually believe that this is human nature either. I don't believe it's it's. I don't believe it's. In kind of broadest sense, kind of human nature to to kind of aspire to kind of greed over the um, over the other stuff I've I've just mentioned. I don't think that is the case. And and so you look at companies like Patagonia. I mean, they're the obvious one of the obvious kind of poster boys for for this. You know, they turnovers three quarters of a billion pounds. They're in environmental activists as a as a company. You know, they. They pay well, you know. They treat their staff well. They have uh, exemplary kind of environmental policies and sustainability sustainability policies, and they make an enormous amount of money 
they're, 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 and they're, they're still a growing business. And then at the other end of the the scale, you look at home baked as a is a in in Anfield, you know, as, as another good example. You know, they're a growing they're a growing business. You know, they've got customers. They make products. They sell products. That uh, every year they they grow. They still pay a, a living wage. Now they're they're in a capitalist. Yeah, you know they're they're they're, they're a business. You know they're they're a, they're a community business, but they're still a business. And it's the thing with social enterprise. Actually, you know, one half of the phrase social enterprise is enterprise. You know that's the is the you know it 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 it's still about business. It's just business that serves a higher. Well, it doesn't serve a higher social and civic or environmental. It just serves a social, civic, and environmental mm. purpose. You know, and I think that's the. By the way, I've only just noticed you're wearing a Patagonian jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think those two are exclusive. In fact, I think it's it's naive to to think that those two are uh, uh, exclusive of one another because there are thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of examples, at very least, of of companies that are good companies, growing companies, and do good. You know, and the other thing about growing companies as well is. Growing, com- uh, growing a company and doing good, it, the, the, the two are linked. You know, the, the, the more you grow, the more good you can do. The more you grow, the more um, people you can employ. Well, that's a social. Yeah. That's a, that's, you know, if, if those people are paid a living wage, at least a living wage, I should say, and can put food on their table and go on holiday and have a good life, well, that's a, that's a social. But you only get to do that by growing yeah, you know, if, if you're if you're leading a, an organization, you know, you know, you get to do that as a result of growing a a, a, a business. So you're part of Awesome Liverpool, yes, which gives five hundred pounds to projects. Yep. that are awesome. Yep. How how do you sort of judge the criteria in terms of? Because I I know that like some ideas are kind of entrepreneurial, some are kind of just creative. How do you sort of make the judgment in terms of? I think so. I think so. It's interesting actually because we 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 there there is occasionally a kind of broad consensus amongst the trustees around what to fund or not. But I don't think we ever sway more often than not either for whether it's a good entrepreneurial idea or it's an art project or it's a good community project. I think it's based. Um, primarily on the strength of the idea and whether we as a group think that it's um it's both it's quite a cool project the person leading it is is quite interested and enthused if it's going to have an impact and people in the city are going to enjoy it you know i think we we, we take it on a kind of case-by-case basis and actually i know that that that's the a big fortune enough three times now to go out to the so awesome liverpool is a um, a local chapter of an international collective, for want of a better phrase, of, of awesome chapters around the, the world. I don't think there's, from what I can kind of gather from all of the international chapters when we've met, when we've met together, is that it 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 just varies by the group of trustees to trustees, and typically what um, what applications you get. You know, the, the trustees in Liverpool is quite a broad spectrum of people as trustees, whereas some of the or some of the chapters are made up of arts people, so they get a lot of arts mm. applications in their city. Some of them are made up of 
tacky people, so they might get a lot of tacky. And, you know, I think it just it it varies. But we don't favour one or the the other. In fact, for a while we started thinking about kind of well, the question starts to get asked: Is this a sustainable idea? And the reality is, it doesn't fucking matter. You know, it's like if it if it's if it's something for five hundred quid, which is fifty quid each, and we give it because we can afford to to give it. You know, we're lucky enough to be able to afford to to give it. But actually, for if if it helps someone do something interesting, but that's not the thing they go on and do forever, it's kind of hardly matters, really, does it? You know, the, the the hope is that as a result of us giving them five hundred pounds to do something interesting, they then use the confidence that that vote of confidence in them as a person to go on and do interesting stuff. That's like the best case scenario. I want to thank Andrew for finding time to do this interview. And I really recommend that you all go buy Ethos magazine. You can find the link to their site on the show notes. Again, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes uh, because it will start to push up the charts. And that way, without losing any money, you can start to make the world a better place.